Part fourteen of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part fourteen. Captain Samuel Goodyear, Matthew Mahoney, and Charles White. Executed for the murder of Sir John D. Goodyear, Baronet. This atrocious murder was committed through the instrumentality of Captain Samuel Goodyear upon his brother, Sir John Dinley Goodyear, on board a man of war, of which the former was captain. Sir John, it appears, was possessed of an estate of three thousand pounds per annum, situated at Evesham in Worcestershire, which he derived from his father, Sir Edward, and his brother, who is the subject of this sketch, having been bred to the sea, was advanced to the rank of captain of one of His Majesty's vessels of war. Sir John, having no children, very sanguine expectations were entertained by his brother that he should inherit his property, but upon his discovering that he had made a will in favour of their sister's children, his rage knew no bounds, and he determined upon a most diabolical revenge for the supposed injury which he had received. The vessel of which Captain Goodyear had the command, it appears, was employed as one of the Channel cruisers, and in the month of January 1741 it was lying at Bristol. At this period it happened that Sir John Goodyear was in that city, transacting some business with Mr. Smith, an attorney, and his brother, having been made acquainted with the circumstance, fixed upon this as a proper time to put his plan into execution. Throwing himself into Mr. Smith's way, he assured him that a perfect reconciliation had taken place between them, notwithstanding a misunderstanding which was known to have existed, and after some conversation, learning that his brother was going to dine with that gentleman on a certain day, he procured himself to be invited to meet him. Having determined upon this as a favourable opportunity to carry his design into execution, on his going ashore he carried with him some of his seamen, to whom he gave instructions that Sir John, being insane, he desired to procure him to be carried on board his ship, in order that he might be conveyed to a place of safety. The men, therefore, having been regaled during the evening at a neighbouring public-house, as night approached placed themselves in readiness to obey the orders which they had received, and Sir John making his appearance, they seized him and forcibly put him into a boat, in which they directly rowed him to the vessel. The protestations made by the captain, that it was only a deserter whom they were apprehending, silenced all inquiry from the crowd which had assembled of their perceiving this outrage, and the unfortunate baronet was secured without an effort being made to procure his release, or to save him from the bloody fate which awaited him. As soon as the devoted victim was in the boat, he said to his brother, "'I know you have an intention to murder me, and if you are ready to do it, let me beg that it may be done here, without giving yourself the trouble to take me on board.' To which the captain said, "'No, brother, I am going to prevent your rotting on land, but, however, I would have you make your peace with God this night.' Sir John, having reached the vessel, he called to the seamen for help, but they, having learned their captain's commands from their fellows, did not offer to render the slightest aid, and the wretched gentleman was immediately conveyed to the purser's cabin. White and Maloney were selected by their captain as the performers in the dreadful scene which was now to be enacted. While Goodyear stood at the entrance of the cabin, guarding it with a drawn sword, his two assistants entered it and approached their victim. He cried aloud for mercy, offering all he possessed as a return, if they would spare his life. But, regardless of his prayers, they deliberately proceeded to the completion of their sanguinary intentions. Seizing him by the shoulders, 
they threw him on the deck, and there, with a handkerchief which they took from his pocket, they attempted to strangle him. Finding that their efforts were unavailing, they procured a cord from their guilty commander, with which they speedily dispatched him. White, kneeling on his breast and holding his hands, while Mahoney fixed the cord round his throat, and tightened it until strangulation had taken place. They then accompanied their captain to his cabin, who gave them the sum agreed upon for their services, and bid them seek their safety in flight. The murder was soon made known on shore, through the instrumentality of the crew of the vessel, and the circumstance, having come to the knowledge of a Mr. Smith, the attorney, he procured a warrant to be issued, upon which the officers of the city proceeded on board the ship. They found that the captain had there been already put under arrest by the lieutenant and sailing-master, and he was immediately conveyed in custody to the prison of the town. It was not long before Mahoney and White were also secured, and the prisoners being brought to trial at Bristol on the 26th of March, 1741, they were convicted on the clearest evidence, and sentenced to death. Captain Goodyear's time after conviction was spent chiefly in writing letters to persons of rank, to make interest to save his life, and his wife and daughter presented a petition to the king, but all endeavours of this kind proving ineffectual, he employed a man to hire some colliers to rescue him on his way to the fatal tree. His efforts in this respect, however, were as unavailing as those which he had made to procure a mitigation of his punishment, for, the circumstance having been made known to the sheriff, he took such steps as were deemed expedient and necessary to prevent the success of the project. The wretched companions, in guilt of the captain, exhibited the greatest hardihood, and when the jailers were employed in putting on their irons, they declared that they had no fear of death. Captain Goodyear's wife and daughter, dressed in deep mourning, took a solemn leave of him on the day before his death, and he went in a mourning coach to the place of execution, to which his accomplices were conveyed in a cart. They were hanged near the hot wells, Bristol, on the 20th of April, 1741, within view of the place where the ship lay when the murder was committed. John Bodkin, Dominic Bodkin, and others. Executed for murder. Oliver Bodkin, Esquire, was a gentleman who possessed a good estate, near Tuam in Ireland. He had two sons by two wives. The elder son, named John, to whom this narrative chiefly relates, was sent to Dublin to study the law, and the younger, who was about seven years of age, remained at home with his parents. The young student lived in a very dissipated manner in Dublin, and soon quitting his studies, came and resided near his father's place of abode. The father allowed him a certain annual sum for his support, but as he lived beyond his allowance, he demanded farther assistance. The father, however, refusing to accede to his wishes, he determined upon a horrible revenge, and included his mother-in-law in his proposed scheme of vengeance, as he imagined that she had induced his father to refuse him any further aid. Having engaged his cousin Dominic Bodkin, his father's shepherd, John Hogan, and another ruffian, of the name of Burke, to assist him in the intended murders, they went to the house of Mr. Bodkin, senior, whose household consisted of four men and three women servants, exclusive of Mrs. Bodkin and the younger son, and a gentleman named Lynch, who was at that time on a visit there. They found all the members of the family at supper on their arrival, and having murdered them, they went into the kitchen, where they killed three servant-maids, and finding the men in different parts of the house, they also sacrificed them to their brutal and unprovoked rage. The murder of eleven persons being thus perpetrated, they quitted the fatal spot, and when some persons from Tuam came the next morning to speak with Mr. Bodkin on business, 
they found the house open, and beheld the dead body of Mr. Lynch, near which lay that of Mrs. Bodkin, hacked and mangled in a shocking manner, and at a small distance her husband, with his throat cut, and the child lying dead across his breast. The throats of the maid-servants in the kitchen were all cut, and the men-servants in another room were also found murdered. The assassins had even been so wanton in their cruelties as to kill all the dogs and cats in the house. The neighbours being alarmed by such a singular instance of barbarity, a suspicion fell on John Bodkin, who, being taken into custody, confessed all the tragical circumstances above mentioned, and impeached his accomplices, on which the other offenders were taken into custody, and all of them were committed to the jail of Tuam. The shepherd then confessed that he had murdered two, but that thinking to preserve the boy, to whom he had been foster-father, he besmeared him with blood, and laid him near his father. Dominic, perceiving him alive, killed him, and he afterwards murdered five more. John Bodkin owned that he and Burke killed the remainder, that he had formerly attempted to poison his mother-in-law, and that he was concerned with his first cousins, John Bodkin, then living, and Frank Bodkin, then lately dead, in strangling Dominic Bodkin, their brother, heir of the late Councillor John Bodkin of Carrowbeg, to an estate of nine hundred pounds a year. When they were brought to trial, John Bodkin, the parricide, Dominic Bodkin, and John Hogan, pleaded guilty, and they were all condemned and executed at Tuam on the 26th of March, 1742. The head of the shepherd was fixed on Tuam Market House, and the bodies of the others gibbeted within sight of the house where the murders had been committed. Upon the confession of John, the cousin of the same name, was apprehended for the murder of his elder brother, Dominic Bodkin, and accused of sitting on his mouth and breast till he was suffocated. He was taken in a moss, or turf bog, near Tuam, covered over with straw, and disguised in an old hat and peasant's clothes, for which he had given his own laced coat and hat. Being examined before Lord Athenry, he said that he had fled for fear of being loaded with irons in a jail, and denied having any hand in his brother Dominic's death, affirming that he had died of a surfeit, as had been reported. He was present at the execution of his relations, but confessed nothing, and thus, there being no positive proof against him, he escaped justice. A case in which more cold-blooded cruelty has been displayed than in this has seldom fallen under our notice. The murder of an indulgent parent must be insufferably shocking to every humane mind, but when we consider, as in the present instance, what a variety of unprovoked murders were added to the first, the mind is lost in astonishment at the baseness, the barbarity, the worse-than-savage degeneracy of those beings who could perpetrate such horrid deeds. Jonathan Bradford, executed for murder. The details of this case reach us in a very abridged form, and we have been unable to collect any information on which any reliance can be placed beyond that which is afforded us by the ordinary channels. It would appear that Jonathan Bradford kept an inn in the city of Oxford, a gentleman, Mr. Hayes, attended by a man-servant, put up one evening at Bradford's house, and in the night the former, being found murdered in his bed, the landlord was apprehended, on suspicion of having committed the barbarous and inhospitable crime. The evidence given against him was to the following effect. Two gentlemen, who had supped with Mr. Hayes, and who retired at the same time to their respective chambers, being alarmed in the night with a noise in his room, and soon hearing groans as of a wounded man, got up in order to discover the cause, and found their landlord, with a dark lantern, and a knife in his hand, 
standing in a state of astonishment and horror over his dying guest, who almost instantly expired. On this evidence apparently conclusive, the jury convicted Bradford, and he was executed. But the fate of this man may serve as a lesson to jurymen to be extremely guarded in receiving circumstantial evidence. The facts attending the above dreadful tragedy were not fully brought to light until the deathbed confession of the real murderer, a time when we must all endeavour to make our peace with God. Mr. Hayes was a man of considerable property, and greatly respected. He had about him, when his sad destiny led him under the roof of Bradford, a considerable sum of money, and the landlord, knowing this, determined to murder and rob him. For this horrid purpose he proceeded with a dark lantern and carving-knife, intending to cut the throat of his guest while yet sleeping, but what must have been his astonishment and confusion to find his intended victim already murdered and weltering in his blood. The wicked and unworthy servant had also determined on the murder of his master, and had committed the bloody deed, and secured his treasure a moment before the landlord entered for the same purpose. End of part 14